It's the Judgment Day Refreshment Committee, the podcast where we review young adult fiction. You'll laugh. You'll cry. You'll... Fall in love with Christian when he belts out, my gift is my song. Welcome to the Judgment Day Refreshment Committee podcast. I am your host, as ever, sexy, sexy Dory Peacock. And with me today, as always, now entertain conjecture of a Tim. It's Timothy Glenn Maurice. I've thought of a new way to scare children. I'm going to call myself a leather face or like skin face chainsaw man. Um, and I'm going to run around, but instead of stealing people's skin, I'm going to take potato skins. I'm going to take potato skins that are served as potato skins. I'm going to take the skin off your potatoes at work. Uh, and then I'm going to knit them into a quilt and then wave them as a flag on the state capitol. And that's how a bill becomes a law. <laughs> Sorry, I was miles away. Uh, <laughs> that was a long one, wasn't it? <laughs> that was your longest one to date, oh, I think. Oh, gosh. You know, and I feel like we all should be scared because the world is full of calamity, catastrophe, and malcontents everywhere. And, you know, it's just a, it's just a polyamorous relationship between those. Everybody would plead a pants for entities. Okay, sorry, I was singing. Uh, and we, <laughs> listeners, today is a special episode. It is our final episode of the summer, and that means it's time for a best which is where we watched not one but two Baz Luhrmann movies and we talk about them with our special guest I like to call her Iamber Pentameter Pentameter I hardly know her yeah Yay! it's Amber whose last name I totally Marie. remember it's Amber Marie everybody she was on for Daria and she's back for Baz which would also be a, the, a good name for a Baz Lerman podcast now that I think about it Baz. Go back to Baz back for Baz yeah Baz Baz we only said goodbye with uh, lots of screaming into the camera, uh, and lots it? of red. Wait, I'm trying to do a thing. You know, we only said goodbye with screams. I died a hundred times in melodramatic neon lighting. You go back to her, but I go back to Baz. Is that a song? It's "Back to Black" by Amy Winehouse. I am gonna make a confession here today, listeners, and also Tim and Amber. I have never listened to a blessed stanza of an Amy Winehouse song. I heard she tried to go to rehab, but everybody said no. Or no, she, she said, said no. no. <laughs> she said no. Oh. Yeah, every, everyone told her to go to rehab, it and was, she said no. It didn't matter what anyone else said. It was her, her choice. Actually, she said yes, but her dad said no, and she died a tragic death. So Just like a couple people on the Baz movies. <gasps> oh, bring it back. 27 Club Forever. Yeah. What's what's the 20 what's the 27 club? All right, listeners, you asked for it. 
It's time for Dory's Stupid Facts before we actually talk about the thing we're talking about. Today's stupid fact is that the 27 Club is basically every musician and actor and artist who died at the age of 27. And there's like a weird number of them. It's uh, it's an unlucky number. It's an unlucky age for musicians to be a part of because you'll probably die. And if you don't die, then you'll just keep living so wait a minute a, a miserable life so probably. adele has released 19 21 and 25 so we should keep an eye on her basically right? yeah does that have anything to do with the 700 club no is there like a very math- different is there very, like very different can i like nostradamus a mathematical like universe connection between those two entities i mean like you could but why t-shirts the 2700 Club. <laughs> 2700 Club. Yes. It's all of the Christian martyrs who donated $700 to Pat Boone's campaign before they died. Yay. That's what the 2700 Club would be. All there's right. 2700 of them, too. <laughs> yes. If, if you want to get in, you have to kill one. It's also the number of people that are going to heaven, according to the book of Revelations. Okay. Just kidding. That's 144,000. It's also what current year it is on the Jewish calendar. What? It's 2,700? I, no, I was, I know that it's not 2,000. I don't even know if it's the Jewish calendar. It's a calendar that is... It's like the Julian calendar or something. The Julie Andrews calendar. The Juliet calendar. The Juliet calendar. Oh, speaking of Julie Andrews, I need to rub something in your face. What? About our Princess Diaries episode. Um, I found out after we recorded that episode that Anne Hathaway was contractually obligated to make the second movie and she didn't want to make it. And? And my argument on last episode was that it felt cheap and sequely, and you disagreed, and I am right, and you are wrong. Dooby, 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 right, wrong, song. Well, in my defense, what I thought was not sequely about it was the dialogue and some of the, some of the story choices from the screenwriter. Some of the Hector Alessandroisms? Yeah, those. Well, fair enough. All right. All right, fellas. So we are here today to talk about Baz Luhrmann, which also sounds like, I don't know, German for the noise it makes when you sip ice cream through a straw. Baz Luhrmann. (laughs) Gunther, stop that Luhrmann at the table or you won't have your Fritz and Long later. So the two movies of Baz Luhrmann's that we watched were Romeo plus Juliet. William Shakespeare's Romeo plus Juliet. That's the full name. Oh, yes. Credit where credit is due. Uh, William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet plus Juliet on filmed on location, I think, in Italy. Isn't it Romeo... It was filmed it in Romeo Christian filmed Cross, in Mexico Juliet? City. It was filmed in Mexico City. That's even better. Yes. That's awesome. Um, but another Romeo and Juliet was filmed in Italy. Yeah, that was the Zeffirelli one, right? Maybe. The old... The, the, old the Olivia Hussey. Hussey. Oh! Oh, the new one with Paul G. Ma. No, the, the 1960s Romeo and Juliet was filmed 
in Italy. Oh yeah, that's that's the Zeffirelli. Oh okay. Yeah, and then he did uh, Taming the Shrew with uh, the Burtons. Ew. The Taylor Burtons. Oh okay, the good ones. Um, the Gothic Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, so good. So we did Romeo and Juliet with Leo DiCaprio and Claire Danes, and we did every theater kid's favorite jack-off session, Moulin Rouge. <laughs> you have to shout it because there's an exclamation point. Oh, yeah, Moulin Rouge. Ha-ha! Oui, à la plage. I feel like, can I have an award for being the best Jim Broadbent impression here? I think Jim here? Broadbent is the best Jim Broadbent. But, like, impression Oh, impression here. in the room, to, yeah. yes. Ha-ha! Can, can, can. The Moulin Rouge. It's so cool. Okay, so uh, Tim, quickly summarize the plot to Moulin Rouge. Uh, so, and we're not going to do G- Romeo plus Juliet because everyone knows Romeo plus Juliet equals tragedy. They That's... fall in love and they die. Bada bing. Okay, spoilers. The Moulin Rouge tells the story of a young poet. Writer who comes to Paris seeking to join the Bohemian Revolution, of which ideas are truth, freedom, beauty, and love. He falls in with a group of artists who convince him to go to the Moulin Rouge one night and pass him off as a famous duke. So a courtesan, he'll get to read his poetry to a courtesan. Unbeknownst to the courtesan, she thinks she is talking to the duke and she accidentally falls in love with him. Then the real duke comes around and they have to work together to pitch the story to try and get out of a sticky situation. There ends up being a giant play while the writer and the courtesan have a love affair behind the duke's back. Uh, There's shenanigans and a requisite sad. And then after they not sad... They sing a song and it's fine, but also tuberculosis, wham, and then it's tragic. Yeah. The end. And he grows also, a depression. Beard. Also, jukebox. Also, um, one original song for the Oscars. Also, it did not win original song because it didn't win. Did it get nom nommed? It didn't get nominated because it wasn't written for Moulin Rouge. It was it was an original song, but it was written for Romeo and Juliet. What? So it was the only, yeah, it was a musical that did not win original song. Well, there you go. But it got nominated for Best Picture in 2004 because it blew everyone's minds. I think Nicole, Nicole Kidman got a nod as well. I think. I believe so. Um, so, obviously, this is like a 90s property, kind of. It came out in, like, both of these came out in the early 2000s. So, 2001, not 2004. Romeo and Juliet's 96. Oh, 96. Yes. Oh, yeah. So um, going with our pre-9-11 postulate here, this is still kind of a 90s movie, which makes it great to end the summer on. Um, and because this is like kind of a nostalgia thing for me as the oldest crone in the room, uh, I want to hear from you guys your memories of when you first encountered these movies. Amber, why don't you start? I... I remember that my parents had the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack, and that was my first intro to the movie. And the Romeo and Juliet soundtrack is A plus, best 90s soundtrack, hands down. It has Love Fool by the Cardigans, which is the best pop song ever. Um, I didn't, I mean, I must have watched Romeo and Juliet when I was a kid, but I do remember most watching it in high school English class in the ninth grade because we were studying Romeo and Juliet at the time. And everybody in the class was shouting at the screen for Juliet to wake up, but she didn't. 
and then she died and then no she didn't die not yet romeo died and then she died Mm -hmm. and then we all yelled at the screen some more (laughs) (laughs) um tim when did you first see romeo and juliet uh two weeks ago that was the first time that was my first time whoa uh, what I'm more familiar with is the Moulin Rouge, um, which when our, one of the previous guests on this podcast, Mika Buner, now Mika Hendricks, uh, we were in high school and we, she would make a lot of mix CDs and share with our friends. And that's where I was introduced to the music of the Moulin Rouge, uh, before I ever saw the movie. And I think soon after I saw the movie in high school and I like, I listened to that soundtrack a lot. If I recall correctly, I listened to the song she she put on that little mix CD many, many times because there was a lot of ooh, going on in there. What song was it? Oh, I think she put on like Elephant Love Medley and like Tango Roxanne and like Nature Boy and stuff. And I was just I was way into it, girls. Way into it. Wow. So both of you kind of found your way into the movie via music. Yes. What about what about you, Amber? When did you discover Moulin Rouge? Um, my parents rented the movie when it first came out, and I was very bored with it. I was probably nine or ten at the time, and I just thought it was kind of dumb. And I remember that my mom and dad were really moved when the Come What May finale was on, and I was just like, this is kind of dumb. And then I got older, and... I got my period, and <laughs> it was the first. <laughs> can I can I tell the story of how you got your period? No. I mean, like, oh. at least the context in which you told me you got it. Okay. Yeah. So. Wait, and, why do you want to tell it? Because yeah. it's funny. Which is it? The Lindsay Lohan story? No, no, no. I mean the story of where you we were hanging out on Monday. Uh, uh-uh, I want to hear her tell it. Okay. Well, I don't know. We were hanging out on Monday, and Amber and I were watching a movie, and. Well. We were watching Blind Spotting, remember? Oh yes, we watched Blind Spotting, and it was the last thirty minutes of that movie were it was very so stressful. stressful that I started my period. <laughs> awesome! <laughs> That's gonna you should put that right on the video box, the right next to all the other reviews. This movie was so stressful. I got my period. <laughs> Anyway, carry on. Okay, so you watched Moulin Rouge with your parents? Yeah, when I was young, and then I got my period old, and that Moulin Rouge was the first movie that I ever cried at when I had my period. Aww. So I will always hold a special time. That, yeah, that will hold a little special slot in my heart. It was a red curtain it trilogy was, yes. for sure. Yeah, da, 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 da. <laughs> Uh, okay, so cue the Ken Burns music. I watched Romeo and Juliet for the first time with, guess who? A teenage older sister! Because she had read Romeo and Juliet in her Shakespeare class, and so she went and rented the new version, which it was at the time. I think we must have rented it on VHS. Because we had a VHS player till I was, like, 14. Um... So I remember watching it with her and I remember I was, I was like six or seven and I was interested in Shakespeare, but I was also like annoyed by it. I was annoyed that I didn't understand what they were saying and I was annoyed that it wasn't classical, that it wasn't a period piece. 
And uh, I remember watching Moulin Rouge. This is probably the weirdest watching story I'm going to tell on here. But my dad had broken his foot racing a student to class. (gasps) And so he had to, like, hang out at home for a while and not move a lot. Neil. Yeah. So... Our mom went to Walmart and got him a little TV set that was one of those combo TV VCRs. It was just like a little 10-inch screen. And she put it on top of their dresser so he could watch movies while his foot was broken. And so since my dad and I are peas in a pod, basically I would like get home from school or wake up on a Saturday morning and, like, as a 12, 13-year-old, toddle into my parents' bedroom and sit on the bed with my dad and watch a movie while his foot was broken. And so the other thing you need to know about my dad is he likes weird girly stuff. And he will watch any movie as long as it's not, like, super gory or super sexual. And so he rented Moulin Rouge. And we sat in my parents' bed and ate popcorn and drank Diet Coke and watched Moulin Rouge when I was 12. And it's one of my great memories with my dad. But I remember us kind of bonding because we were both like, eh, it's not that good. (laughs) And I don't know if my dad even remembers that. (laughs) Did your views change on it now? Do you think it's good now? Oh, that's the thing. So as a kid, my thoughts were, um, this is pretentious because like visually it does everything. It has every kind of camera angle. It has every kind of miniature effect. It's got every kind of dancing and it it remixes these like mid-century classic pop tunes with these cool new makeovers And so for me, who was like, I'm tired of the 90s giving makeovers to things because I am a 12-year-old purist, damn it. I was like, this is pretentious and dumb and overdone and I hate it. And as an adult, I'm like, you know, it's prettier and more interesting than I thought. The story is still too weak for me to care that much. And it still feels, like, overdone and kind of stupid to me. But part, but that's, like, partly because at this point it's had so many imitators that it feels, it feels trite. It was the OG Glee. Kind of was the OG Glee. Like, I watched four seasons of Glee. <laughs> or yeah, was, it, was it four or three? I don't know. I watched at least three. At least one too many. Yeah. That's how many seasons I no, watched. No, it was, I watched, I watched four. Um, almost the whole thing. And on someday I'll finish it, maybe. But, like, it's true. Like, a lot of the, Glee looked and felt a lot like the Moulin Rouge. Even though it was like a scaled back TV version. It was in your face and it was loud and it was blaring and it. It was campy. It, it was, was a little hammy. The songs were super overproduced. Yeah. Um. Somebody dies. I'm confused. <laughs> I I would take our argument. I would take contention with the idea that Moulin Rouge is pretentious because to me it's too dumb to be pretentious. I don't know if it can be both. Oh yeah, that is one thing. As an adult, I was like, oh okay. As a kid, I didn't get that it knows it's dumb, and I think if I would have gotten that, I would have liked it more. It's still not my cheese. 
I don't know, what changed for you, Amber, between when you were a kid and when you got your period? <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, as it relates to it's this a, movie. It is a besides period. Besides the weird hair. Okay? And it is a period piece. <laughs> Yay. Ah! <laughs> um, Sorry. I, I, the older that I get, the more that I love camp and ham and cheese and all of that stuff. And... I think I think that Moulin Rouge is a movie that you shouldn't take too seriously at all. And I think that's the same thing for the 90s Romeo and Juliet as well. Oh yeah. Um I do the older that I get and the more that I watch Moulin Rouge and Romeo and Juliet. Sorry, that was a tam- I don't know where I was going with that one. Okay. But um I I don't know. I think that musicals don't really get as much respect as they used to anymore. And Moulin Rouge did kind of revitalize musicals that were cool again. That's true. Because I feel like that did kind of pave the way for Chicago, which came out. Did Chicago come out after that one? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. For Chicago, which turned out to be a big hit. And then the that's probably why... Anyone distributed the Phantom of the Opera movie. I mean, God bless all our souls for that one. But um, I think one of the things that bothered me, too, about Moulin Rouge was uh, the music. I really loved the original versions of those songs, especially that Elton John one. And so there's there was nothing more irritating to me at the time. As an adult, there are a few things more irritating, but only a few, than someone taking a song that is already a really good song and then remaking it. I, it, it bugs me. I don't like it that much. I think as an adult, I kind of got that, like, part of that is that Christian's genius isn't extra special, and part of it is that, like, that modernness shows the modern watcher, how um, how unique bohemian culture would have been in its time. Like, I get that as an adult. As a kid, though, I had so many friends who went all in on those versions of the songs that I was like, no, this is annoying to me. But, like, as a teen, like, it's so... Those songs are so... Because of how they're arranged. Because they're so expressive. And it's so much, and there's nothing else like it. But, like, those songs are, like... They're perfectly well expressed. They don't. But how need could to be you? Rearranged. But they need to. They need to be rearranged to express my teen angst. I'm sad, and I'm nine. I'm eighteen. I'm seventeen, and I'm alone, and no one will kiss me in the school play, and I'm sad. How could you not? And I need these songs to to help me channel my. Rage. But how could you not? the thing isn't it because it's not as good as elton john doing it well that song wasn't for you it was for satine it was for me it's not it was for me when i was 17 well it's like i don't know it's such a weird movie because it's one of those movies that like the movie tells you you're not supposed to take it seriously but then every everybody our age like i feel like genuinely got swept up in the romance of it and i'm not sure that's well i feel like like it's not necessarily telling you 
It's not telling you not to take it seriously. It has it's saying, cartoon boing boing noise. It does. That's the best part. But the boing boing that tells you not to make take it too seriously because it there's says like you Wee-oo. can take it as seriously as you want. It's not saying this is a because the tone is all over the map, and that's because it wants to be all things because. Baz Luhrmann likes emotions. He wants his movies to feel a certain way. It doesn't matter what's going on. I mean, I think that he shows you at the very beginning, it doesn't really matter what's happening when, like, Ziedler is singing about the can-can and suddenly he's 10,000 feet tall standing outside the Moulin Rouge. And then he's literally flipping through the air like a balloon losing air as he flies inside of it. Like, realism does not matter in these no, movies. No, the I emotions know. And that's matter. Why, and, and that's why, like... So it can be. I don't know. That's why when people get swept into it, so it I'm can, like, dude, no, nah. because I, I like that stuff. I like, I like the over the top stylization I of think, it. I, I think know. that Moulin Rouge is a product of its time, and if it came out in 2018, I don't think it would have. I think it would. Do you? The same well, emotional, well, not emotional I, effects, but like know. people long for sincerity now they want stuff that's real i mean that's why they like the new star wars because it's about space friends mm-hmm. and that's why they like mama mia and that's why they like crazy rich asians because like because they're all about space friends they are because they're they're very emotional pe- i mean mama mia is a great case for this mama mia too like it's not a plot driven piece the story does not matter it's an emotional piece and people want happy cathartic indulgent emotions right now where everybody dies yeah well i do i do like the emotion of it and i did kind of find myself getting swept up swept up in it in spite of myself and i think i respect it a lot more now than i did as a young person it's just like like my camp was phantom of the paradise (laughs) that's the weird thing i attached to because i was like oh this is so weirdly opulent and i actually do like the songs in phantoms and like i it's so easy to dislike moulin rouge i'm like no i get it because it's so indulgent it's just like do you not want red velvet cake with like dripping cream cheese ice cream served over a plate of like I don't know how to make this this hypothetical. Marzipan. Just throw marzipan. Yeah, in just somewhere. just layers of marzipan everywhere. Marzipan, more fudge, you know, peppermint bark. Just like imagine this giant thing. That's the Moulin Rouge. It was indulgent, but that's it's just Baz Luhrmann. Can we? I mean, it's like Romeo plus Juliet is the same way. Mm. And here's the thing: like, there's stuff about his Romeo and Juliet that I don't super love. But he understands that play, and he understands what's what it's about. And he understands teens. He understands the fangirl impulse. Well, that was what Shakespeare was all about too. Like Shakespeare was, in not indulgent, a little bit, but well, like language, a little bit, yeah. yeah. Um, but like people treat Shakespeare like he is the finest of the, you know, like the best English writer ever. But he does a lot of dick jokes, and he does a lot of, like, weird... Boing boings. And you went, yes, because he was making movies for the educated, or not movie. he wasn't making movies, sorry. He would have if he could. Yeah, he would, yeah. I like the Baz Romeo plus Juliet equals whoosh, because... That's the kind of movie that I feel like Shakespeare would have made if Shakespeare made movies. Shakespeare would have loved Romeo plus Juliet. Yeah. I think so, because I think Shakespeare, like, 
every monologue in Henry V is about, here's, here's what this would look like if we could show it to you. There's a chorus just because Shakespeare was like, oh, it would be so rad if we could have all these horses in here, but we can't. So I'm just going to do that with language. And what's so cool about the Baz Luhrmann Romeo and Juliet is that Baz Luhrmann is like, I can translate that language into visuals and they're his stylized over the top visuals, but they tell the story that Shakespeare was telling. And that's why like, I would love to see him do another musical, but maybe like one that had like a different script. Like maybe if you handed Baz Luhrmann something, like if you had handed him Phantom of the Opera, can you imagine? Oh gosh, it would have been, it's perfect. Maybe they'll do that. The, the sad thing is musicals these days are t- trending in a totally other direction, though. Yeah. Like on stage. They're so all like, political. Well, they're political and also they're scaled back. So people like things like The Curious Case of the Dog in the Nighttime and Fun Home and uh, another one that we already covered in the podcast, uh, Dear Evan Hansen. Goodness knows why. So, oh, sorry. You guys aren't going to keep talking over my shade? No, no. <laughs> Now you have to explain it. Oh, I just don't like those musicals because I, uh, I keep going back to our our lady of of perpetual indulgence, Lindsay Ellis, uh, who talks about how if you're going to make a movie musical, it kind of has to be stylized because the world of a musical is stylized. And I think that's kind of where La La Land failed is that whenever the music's not there, the stylization goes away. And also La La Land is schizophrenic because it's using techniques that are reminiscent of indie musicals. That guy made another indie musical. It's called Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench. It's cute and it's small and it's shot in black and white. But like indie musicals use a lot more like free roaming cameras and long takes, which are great and they're cool, but they're stylistically at odds with old Hollywood musical tap dance sequences that last for 10 minutes. Have you ever watched uh, Funny Face? The... The long take aspect is it, but I mean, consider the stylization of like a dressed up set and like, we're going to explore this space with a handheld camera. We're like going to go down hallways. Dude, dude, you watched 1776 with me. They were all about that handheld camera. (laughs) They put a camera on a wheelchair so that Blythe Danner could dance with it so they could get a John Adams POV shot of the waltz scene. But that, okay. Well, I feel like it's not the same as like, another day of sun where we're like moving and weaving in and out of cars okay the the thing is it's not so much the camera work or the the like the concrete aesthetic that makes la la land not work what makes it not work is that it's not stylized enough for a musical Mm, i thought that la la land didn't have enough songs in it it right. Didn't. It had like yeah. it had like four songs and one of the songs wasn't even sang by any of the leads. Mm-hmm. And it like La La Land was a cute little movie, but it could have used like four more songs at yeah. least. Give Baz Luhrmann La La Land. Ooh. Yeah. And a better songwriter cuz Basic and Banal suck. Oh my gosh. The the one that I'm looking forward to is like In the Heights, right? Because that's like, it's kind of meeting in the middle. It's Oh, that could be really cool. It's it's Lin-Manuel's first thing. It's like the, this kind of scaled back musical that's really popular now with like Curious Case and like Dear Evan Hansen and stuff like that. Like those are, In the Heights is a little bit closer to those in some ways than something like Moulin Rouge, which is like this huge, opulent, mega thing. Like there hasn't been a musical like that that I think really burst into the popular consciousness since like wicked which yeah yeah give baz wicked give baz wicked did you guys watch the tv show he made 
Because I didn't. Was it called Smash? The Get Down. Uh, no. Was it good? I didn't watch it. I didn't either, but I probably should. I think it's still on Netflix. It. I think so. Speaking of Baz, did you complete the strict or the Red Curtain trilogy and watch Strictly Ballroom? Uh, no. I've seen Strictly Ballroom before, but I remember it being. It's so different than the others. It's though. the least Baz. Baziest it movie. It doesn't have like so. The thing that really surprised me about Romeo and Juliet, having seen Moulin Rouge first, is just how similar they are. Like, especially Baz Luhrmann does two things: the wacky sound effects, mm-hmm. and the and he loves messing with tempo. So he loves people going faster or slower than they should. Lots of fast camera. camera movements. So lots of we're speeding up the camera movement or we're slowing it down. Like that happens a lot during. And there's Moulin lots Rouge. of redheads in Romeo and Moulin Rouge, oh, and there's yeah. not a lot of redheads in Strictly Ballroom. Also, soft is, boys. Is Strictly Ballroom is that the one with a, like a young Craig Ferguson? And all these different people from London meet up at this, like, dance club. And the woman is like, if you can't dance, you can't make love. No? No. No, it's... Oh, what movie is that? That's a story of two people trying to enter a ballroom competition. That's dirty dancing. And... No, I don't... That was <laughs> yeah. Strictly Ballroom was part of the Red Curtain trilogy, The Red Curtain right? trilogy. After the fact, he's like, these movies are thematically connected. Mm. And they are a little bit. It's kind of like the Cornetto trilogy. A little, yeah, yeah. Um, the, I mean, they're all the Red Curtain trilogy. All kind of have like that Romeo and Juliet aspect of star-crossed lovers, mm-hmm. where um, in the Red or in Strictly Ballroom, you have like a pro ballroom dancer, and then you have like a kind of plain Jane girl who is in a beginner's class who has to dance with other girls, and then they dance together even though she's not a very good dancer but that's who she wants that's who he wants to dance with and his family like tries to break them apart but and her whole thing is she's from like a different culture so she brings like this other style of dance that no one else can do oh it is kind of dirty dancing yeah. it is, and yeah everybody wants strictly ballroom but she's like let's add a little salsa to this <laughs> the shake em up and she's they both shaking them up. Nobody dies in that movie. It has a, it has a similar stuff, production design wise. It's his first movie. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And first it, movie. It's very campy and it's very Australian. Uh, that's awesome. Would you call it an exploitation movie? Yes, that's a, you should coin that word. Oh, I didn't. It's from the Flophouse. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> I just steal everything good from the Flophouse. Just like Baz Luhrmann stole everything from pop culture. Pretty much. Um, so here's my thing uh, about Romeo and Juliet. Is that I had someone once tell me it's their favorite Romeo and Juliet adaptation. Because, spoiler alert, for this 400-year-old play and this 26-year-old movie. Uh, in this one, Juliet wakes up... Right after Romeo drinks the poison, so they're both still alive, and they she watches him die. And I do like that addition, like, as a tragic, to add, like, just an extra punch of yeah. tragedy. It does give it a new spin on, because everybody knows what's going to happen, but nobody knew that, yeah, they were going to cry over each other. There's, like, a whole level to Leo. Mm-hmm. Oh, like, boy. I don't know if we've ever talked on this show before about baby leo but oh it's he's the softest boy 
Do you think he was in a ska band when he was in Romeo and Juliet? Because all he wore was Hawaiian shirts. Oh, uh, probably. That Le- was the age of ska. Leonardo I- DiCaprio. <laughs> He's like, do, 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 do. I'm in the movie Titanic. Do, 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 do. <laughs> but yes, Leonardo is a very beautiful, beautiful boy. Yeah, I don't know. I never, uh, I think he's more handsome now. Fight me. No. It, he I'll lost. take 1996 Leo, can, and you can have 2018 Leo. He can catch me Leo. if you can, Leo. I, I mm, like, I like the floppy-haired Leo running away. Uh, <laughs> um, and teens love... Like, like I like this version of Romeo and Juliet because it there's sex in it in a way that there's not in other movies. There's like that one scene where they're like under the white sheet and they're like That's saying a cute words scene. to each other. Yeah, they're just saying stuff that doesn't make any sense because nobody can understand. And like... This is about, like, love, cocaine, OCD feelings. Ecstasy. They take ecstasy at the party. Like, this is about an obsessive version of love, not, like, a realistic one. So at least it's honest with the fact that it's about teen hormones and that it's appealing to teen hormones. Yeah, yeah. That's that's one thing I really like about his interpretation of it is that so many people are like, oh, this is the greatest love story of all time. And I'm like, no, this is... A tragedy about how fighting with your enemies uh, makes your kids do bad things because of dumb reasons. And they wouldn't, they weren't even like star-crossed lovers because Romeo just has an, a, an obsession with girls that he can't really have because he had the obsession with Rosaline oh, yeah. earlier on where he was just like heartbroken over her and they're like, all right, let's get you to a party, cowboy. And then he meets Juliet and everybody's life is Through just- a fish tank. Yes. Yeah. And if their families hadn't been fighting, there would be no reason they couldn't get married, which probably means he wouldn't have been as attracted to her and the whole thing wouldn't have happened. Well, there was, there's a part in the movie where who, is it Benvolio? Uh, John- Johnny Legs? No, uh, I can't remember- what the Shakespeare name was, and I can't even Benvolio. Benvolio, where um, Benvolio sees Romeo at the party, and he's oh, like, "Mercutio." I'm... No, it's not Mercutio. Mercutio is the black one. Yeah, but it's not. Yeah, Benvolio's the redhead. That's like, or he's the John Leguizamo. John Leguizamo is Tybalt. Okay, Tybalt. That's that's yes. who I'm talking about. Yeah, Tybalt oh, okay. sees <laughs> sees Romeo at the party, and he's like, "Let's go kill these Montagues." And then Juliet's dad comes around and he's like, no, this is a party. We can just let everything hang down for a second. And it just sounds like this, the parents were like business rivals, but it's the kids that just hated each other's guts and ruined everything. Oh, yeah. The choice to make like the Capulets and Montagues like big business owners with like large, the, the names in large block letters down the sides of skyscrapers. I love it. I love that Baz Luhrmann is like, Never, he knows that there's no choice that's too much. Yeah. And he translates that stuff pretty well. Like, I think it works pretty well to kind of make these spoiled rich kids into gangsters. I really liked all their guns. They had really cute guns. Oh, yeah, they had those, like, big old, like, looks like a giant Walther. I think it's, and this confused a lot of people because I think when you first saw it, it's an aggressive adaptation. Like, it's literally a gun with the word sword on it, which if you don't have a concept of, like, adaptation, you're like, why is it, why is it different? But, yeah. like, it's a great case study for adaptation as well because it's making choices where it's trying to stay true to these ideas and emotions of the original, but it's translating them to an entirely new set of 
things that you've never seen before. People would have hated it if they actually carried real life swords around with them in the 90s. Like suddenly mm-hmm. they're just like sword fighting and people be like, this doesn't make any sense, but it's Shakespeare and, and nothing. The kids really- liked it because it had fast cars and Leo. Well, but like. And Hawaiian shirt. And I, Hawaiian shirts. I, I'm going to be honest. This is not. This is clearly not my favorite Shakespeare adaptation. But I will say it. It adapts a lot of things better than most adaptations. So there's a Romeo and Juliet that came out like five or six years ago that had Paul Giamatti. And they totally dumbed down all the language. Like not all of it. They keep famous phrases and stuff, but they simplify a lot of it. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You don't need to do that. You just need people who know how to say the words. And that's what's cool about this adaptation is that Mercutio knows exactly what he's saying. Tybalt knows exactly what he's saying. Baz Luhrmann knows exactly how to translate all of the language into visual language. But Claire Danes and Leonardo DiCaprio have no idea what they're saying. But isn't there something kind of good about that? No. That like these dumb teenagers are just, these dumb teenagers are just saying whatever. And it's like, they don't really mean the words. They just want to, like, you know, mash face and put their tongue in e- their tongues in each other's no, mouths. No! It reminded no. me exactly of being in high school English class where your teacher would give everybody a part to read so they all get participation. Mm-hmm. And you have, like, a really serious actor like Leonardo DiCaprio who does kind of have an idea what he's saying. And then you have Claire Danes who's just like, I'm so happy that in English class my teacher gave me the part that I can read across from the guy that I have a crush on. And then you have like the the bit parts where nobody really knows how to act, like the the cousins and things like that. Oh no, I love the cousins. Cause they actually can do the language. But like uh, ugh. and I wouldn't have noticed this as a kid. I only noticed it after I was a theater major. Uh that like Romeo, like Claire Danes definitely in the hierarchy of who knows what they're saying and can say it. Claire Danes, yeah, she's pretty far down. Yeah. But Leonardo DiCaprio is not that far above her. Like there are so many weird places where he pauses that I'm like, no, the rhythm tells you not to pause there. Like that's part of this other phrase. And you can tell like, I don't know, that's a pet peeve of mine. It happens a lot in that Joss Whedon much ado that I hate. And it happens a lot in the new Romeo and Juliet. And also, like, Baz Luhrmann might be the only director that knows you can't whisper Shakespeare. Hmm. Yes. No, I have nothing to add to that. I think that's a... (laughs) I'm nodding. Yeah, I think that's a very good... Um, would you think, I think that Romeo and Juliet is my favorite of the teen 90s Shakespeare adaptations, though. Yeah, I would agree with that. Like, 10 Things I Hate About You is cute. I think that's my second favorite, but I really do like Romeo and Juliet as that whole little sub, not subculture, but. But they're not just Shakespeare adaptations, because it's all literature. It's, Mm -hmm. it's clueless, and it's cruel intentions. And she's all well. She she's all that was something too, right? No, no. There's a there's an Othello. That's, I guess that's Pygmalion. Yeah, she's all no. She's all that was. Uh, oh no, she's all that. I'm thinking of she's the man. Yeah, was, she's the uh, man was uh, Twelfth Night. Twelfth Night. But she's all that. I guess is Pygmalion in like a very bare bones eh, kind of way. Eh, eh. Kind of. I mean, eh, 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 
When am I going to get my teenage adaptation of Miss Julie? That's what I want. We're getting Sierra Burgess is a loser. When am I getting my uh, teenage head of gabbler? Which is pronounced gobbler in Sweden. <laughs> what about a modern day teenage romance of Mary Poppins? Oh, gosh. Oh, hey, maybe that's how the new one will turn out with Lynn and... and uh, the other girl. Blunty. Blunty Blunterson. <laughs> I've been given actors' nicknames. Like Emmy Blunty. <laughs> Emmy Blunty. Emmy Blunty. Uh, Johnny Legs is what we've been calling John Leguizamo. <laughs> Uh, Joey Pants is Joey Pantoliano. And yeah. It's the glossary for this episode. It is. Look it up. Look it up, judges. All right. We got to wrap this thing up. Um, so we decided our Baslerman dream projects were either Phantom of the Opera or Wicked. Any others? No. I Because that Phantom of the Opera movie is so bad. I think we deserve another crack at it. With Baz at the helm? With Baz at the helm, because he would know how to do all of it properly. What about a Baz Wizard of Oz? Oh, gosh. A Bazard of Oz. I couldn't think of anyone else I'd rather see that from. Wizard of Boz. Wizard of Boz! Yeah. That would be so rad. Um, So let me ask you this. You know, I don't have a final question. I'm just going to close her on up. You guys good with that? Yeah, just sew her. Just sew her innards in there. Okay. Tuberculosis is tragic, isn't it? It really is. But it's so beautiful when she coughs up that bright red blood. It is. Yeah, and it makes her so skinny and pale. Yeah. <laughs> I love Fresh it. Fresh to death. It. Listen, I like, I couldn't speak to Norma and Juliet, but I feel like the over-emotion of Moulin Rouge spoke to me. And this was at a time when other stuff was coming out. Like, I listened to Phantom. I listened to Wicked. It did something that the other musicals didn't. And I really like that there's this super indulgent movie. And as an adult, I really like it because the filmmaking is really tight. It's edited so wonderfully. And you can tell this guy loves making movies and he loves making musicals. And I think that shows for me. And that's what I really like it. Keep on keeping on, Baz. We love you. We love you. Well, I love you. I don't. I can't speak for you two, but I do. I I like what he's. I like what he's doing. I like The Great Gatsby, and no one liked that. I, I haven't watched it because uh, I really like the book, and I didn't want to be sad. We need a 3D TV if you're going to watch it. Oh, good point. Okay, well, that is our episode for today. Thank you, everybody, for listening. You can follow the committee on Twitter at JDRC Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook at the Judgment Day Refreshment Committee. Hey, what's our Instagram handle, I hear you asking? It's at JDRC Podcast. Our website is jdrcpodcast.podbean.com. You can email us at jdrcpodcast.com. At gmail.com. I'm a robot. You can can follow me on Twitter at Dory E. Peacock. You can follow Tim on Twitter at Cyberprior. You can follow. Do you want people to follow you on Twitter? They can. Uh, I'm on Twitter at A Girl at the Bar. I'm on Instagram as underscore This Modern Life. I'm on Facebook as Amber Marie. I'm sorry that I talked about my period so many times during this episode. Don't Dude, be sorry. If you can't talk about your period on a podcast, what can you talk about on a podcast? Uh, that is our social meets, everybody. Um, HMS Pinafore, my show at the Off Broadway, is still going on until September 8th. Come and see that. Tell them you know me, and they might give you a discount. It could happen. Um, also, you guys got anything you want to plug? 
No, no. I see you like looking at me. You're you're gonna say it. This is a period. Yeah, it's period jokes. like a period plug. Okay. Okay, that's not a thing that exists. Thanks everybody for listening. <laughs> These are our sign-offs. It's a period piece. Ha ha. Thanks. Remember, we won't judge you, but we will bring the Jello salad to your trial.